We're going to start off with the St. Olaf Cantorii and O oh God Our Help in Ages Past. Was the St. Olaf Cantorii with a hymn by Isaac Watts. It's often sung at remembrance service, that one. But let's go over to David as he introduces this week's poem by Malcolm Gait. Malcolm Gait spoke at the last Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh. Malcolm is chaplain of Gerson College in Cambridge and he's written several books of poetry. Here he reads his sonnet for The Silence on Remembrance Day. I stood for the two minutes silent today and then uh, I suddenly found um, myself almost compelled after that silence to write and I, I sat down and this sonnet called Silence came very swiftly. November pierces with its bleak remembrance of all the bitterness and waste of war. Our silence tries but fails to make a semblance of that lost peace they thought worth fighting for. 
Our silence seethes instead with wraiths and whispers and all the restless rumour of new wars. The shells are singing as we sing our vespers. No moment is unscarred. There is no pause. In every instant, bloodied innocence falls to the weary earth. And whilst we stand, quiescence ends again in acquiescence. And Abel's blood still cries in every land. One silence only might redeem that blood. with a sonnet for Remembrance Sunday. A Scottish paraphrase coming up now, the words of the prophet Isaiah looking forward to the day when there will be no more wars. As one of the verses says, No longer hosts encountering hosts shall crowds of slain deplore. They hang the trumpet in the hall and study war no more. Here are the Scottish Philharmonic singers with Behold the mountain of the Lord and latter days shall rise. of the Lord. The name of that tune is Glasgow and it was sung there by the Scottish Philharmonic singers. But let's get back to David. 
Margaret Macmillan is a historian who wrote about the First World War and who spoke about it to Michael Barclay on Remembrance Day. Nixon in China, the uses and abuses of history and the war that ended peace about the long build-up to the First World War. Margaret, as somebody who's written and broadcast so extensively about the First World War, I wonder what your thoughts are as you look back at the 11th of November, 1918. I think I still, perhaps even more than I used to, look at the First World War as a watershed in, in modern history. It is something that sits there right in the middle of the history of the 19th and 20th centuries and I think still casts a shadow over our times. And the more I read about it, and the more I read about what followed it, the more I think it really did make a difference. I think the world became a different place because of the First World War. But I think now we do look back at that war and we just look at the waste. I think what we remember most of all is just the extraordinary casualty figures. You know, 20,000 men killed in one day in a single attack. I was in Newfoundland recently, which was in those days a separate colony, and, and they have a memorial to the Newfoundland Regiment 801 men went over the front on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and when they called the roll about two days later, 68 men turned up. It's pretty appalling, isn't it? Yes. How has the way in which we commemorate our war dead changed over the last century? Oh, it's changed a lot. I mean, what I find so interesting is at the end of the First World War, on the Allied side, people thought they'd won a great victory. And they talked in terms of victory, and they talked in terms of our dead war heroes. I mean, this was a commemoration of those they felt had done the right sort of thing. And it's really only towards the end of the 1920s and then in successive decades that you get a feeling that nobody was a hero in this, and the whole thing was totally futile and wasteful. But if you look at how people remembered it, who had fought in it, they did remember it in a different way, and so did their societies. But now, of course, we have a very different picture of the First World War. Your first piece of music, uh, Ravel's La Valse, was written just after the war ended. And although one could think of La Valse as being a rather joyous dance, it actually has a rather more, if you like, dark side to it, doesn't it? Because it's a dance to the death almost. I've always found it so. I mean, it's a piece of music I, I really like. And it does have these wonderful waltz melodies. And, and I've always loved waltzes. I mean, they seem to be lighthearted. And you think of Vienna before the First World War. And it, it, it does seem like another world and a happy world, even if we're wrong about that. But you do get in, in La Valse, I think, the sense of disintegration. It, it suddenly stops. And there are abrupt sort of jazzy moments. And, and you think... Whether or not he meant it, this seems to me to, to sort of represent a society which was serenely waltzing on and then suddenly something comes and interrupts it and it's never the same. But it's like a whirling dervish because it actually twists and turns towards the end in such a way that it can't go anywhere but fall over. Yes, yes. And, and I think, you know, that's how I feel European society must have felt after the First World War. I mean, Ravel had been in the war. I mean, he very bravely volunteered. He was quite a small man, and he said, I could be a good pilot because the planes are quite light and they can take me up. And when he couldn't do that, I mean, he was 40, he had a car condition, he, he volunteered to be a truck driver at the front, which was much more dangerous than, than, than being a pilot. And I do think, after the war was over, I mean, people looked and they thought, what have we done to ourselves? What have we done to our civilization? And I think, whether or not he, he, he consciously thought about this, I don't know, but it seems to me this piece of music says something like that. Well, I think we should hear the end, which, uh, the last section, where it actually does, mm. as I say, sort of fall off the edge of the planet. climax of Ravel's La Valse, performed by the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Yannick Nézé-Séguin.
A century on, Margaret Macmillan, many of us still feel um, a very personal connection to the First World War. And that's certainly the case for you, I think, because both your grandfathers fought. And did they ever talk about the experience? They didn't talk about it to me, but um, my grandfather in Canada talked about it to my sister when she was very young, and she said she now reproaches herself, which of course she shouldn't, that she didn't understand, and he talked about the trenches. But I've since learned that's quite a common thing. Grandparents often can talk to their grandchildren about things that they can't talk to their own children about. My Welsh grandfather was at Gallipoli, and he never talked to his children about it, but he did once tell my grandmother that he was still haunted, but he was a doctor there and he was ordered to leave the wounded on the beach. They were all going to be evacuated and he was told to get on the ship and go. And, and he said to the men, don't worry, someone will be back for you. And he went back a week later and no one had come back for them and they were all dead. And I think it haunted him for the rest of his life. I wonder, Margaret, how you see the relationship between the big picture of history and personal family stories. I think we have to think of things in personal terms. I mean, if you read... You know, 20,000 people killed in a disaster, a million people killed in, a, in, a, in, in some dreadful illness or something. It horrifies us, but not in the same way as, as someone saying, but I was there, or I knew someone who was there. And I think, I suspect you may be in about the same generation as me, or maybe a bit younger, but we are the last generation who knew people, directly knew people who were in the First World War. We're now sort of vanishing from the scene. So another connection with the past is being, is being lost. And Michael Barclay was talking there to Margaret Macmillan. Here now is the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus with part of a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier. It's Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, Forgive Our Foolish Ways. City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra Chorus with Whittier's Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, Forgive Our Foolish Ways. That reminded me of another of Whittier's hymns or poems. 
Way back when, when I was in the school choir, there was a service updating the school war memorial to include those lost in the Second World War. We sang it then. I have the words here. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, but I will attempt to read it for you. John Greenleaf Whitty was a Quaker, and you may detect a Quaker perspective. Here we go. O brother man, fold to thy heart thy brother. Where pity dwells, the peace of God is there. To worship rightly is to love each other, each smile a hymn, each kindly deed a prayer. For he whom Jesus loved hath truly spoken, the holier worship which he deigns to bless restores the lost and binds the spirit broken and feeds the widow and the fatherless. Follow with reverent steps the great example of him whose holy work was doing good. So shall the wide earth seem our Father's temple, each loving life a psalm of gratitude. Then shall all shackles fall, the stormy clangor of wild war music o'er the earth shall cease. Love shall tread out the baleful fire of anger, and in its ashes plant the tree of peace. And here we have Red Hurley with Dolly Parton's song, Hello God. Hello God, are you out there? Can you hear me? Are you listening anymore? Hello God, if we're still on speaking terms, can you help just like before? I have questioned your existence my resistance leaves me cold Can you help me go the distance? Hello, God, hello, hello This old world has gone to pieces Can you fix it? Is there time? Hate and violence just increases We're so selfish, cruel and blind And that was Irish singer Red Hurley. The song was written by Dolly Parton, no less. The title, Hello God. And now it's back to David. Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian describes God in action. God in action. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them, in the valley near the hill of Moray. 
a conversation between God and Gideon. Gideon, I've been thinking. Yeah? Well, you're not frightened of the Midianites, are you? I mean, they're not very clever, are they? No, I've heard they're as thick as locusts. Why? Well, we wouldn't want anyone to start boasting that Israel has saved herself, would we? Oh, no, heaven for... No, no, of course not. So I've had an idea. Oh, have you? Good. What is it, then? Well, I thought we could cut the army down a bit. Yeah, well, that's not such a bad idea. Yeah, wouldn't do any harm to lose the elderly and the sick, maybe the very young. Yeah, that should lose a couple of hundred. Uh, no, I was thinking you could announce that anyone who's frightened doesn't have to fight. Oh, dear. Well, that should make a difference, shouldn't it? Oh, yes, yes, that should make a difference. Right, well, off you go and tell them, then. Look, I'll just go and get my fleece and... No, no, no more fleeces. Just go and tell them. I'll wait here, OK? OK. Gideon exits slowly. God whistles fight the good fight as he waits. After a minute or so, a huge cheer is heard outside. Gideon re-enters, a pale shadow of the pale shadow of himself that he was before he went out. How did it go? Fine. Lose many? 22,000? 22,000 on have gone home, God. Are you sure this was such a good idea? You're not seriously suggesting I take on the Midianites with 10,000 men, are you not? Are you not, are you? You are, aren't you? <laughs> Attack the Midianites with an army of 10,000 men? Of course not. Oh, thank goodness for that. No, that's far too many. Look, I'll just get my fleece. No, no, listen. I've got a really good idea for cutting the army down even more. Oh, have you? What's that, then? Anyone who's never wanted to be boiled in oil can go home. That should leave us with a very small group of complete loonies. No, no, this is a really interesting one. You take all 10,000 of the ones who are left down to the water and watch how they drink. Down to the water. Yes. What shall they drink? Yes. God? Yes. There's uh, quite a move to cart me off to the funny farm as it is after my last great tactical ploy. Now you're suggesting I'll go and stand on that hill again and announce that I want all 10,000 of them to march down to the water so I can watch them drink. They might wonder why I want them to do that, God. I know I'm going to wish I hadn't asked this question, but uh, why would I want to make them do something like that? Ah, well, you see, all the ones who kneel down and drink straight from the river will get rid of, right? And we'll keep all the ones who lap from their hands. Of course, silly me. Oh, fancy me not seeing that. Of course, that's what we'll do. I'll go and do it now. He returns. How's it going? Three hundred left. Tents and provisions for 32,000 being shared by 300 dentally handy-lapped men. Still too many, I suppose, is it? Look, I'll tell you what, why don't I send them all home? Then I can pop down and do the job on my own. No, that would be far too much to expect. Interesting idea, though. I might try it myself sometime. God? Yes? I'm frightened. Well, of course you are, but I've had this really good idea. Oh, you haven't, have you? Yes, what you do is... You go down to the Midianite camp tonight, in disguise, and while you're there, pray with me. Father, when you really take hold of our lives, the speed and energy with which you work can be quite bewildering. Once or twice, when you've taken a situation I'm involved in by the scruff of the neck, I've found myself almost wanting to back out. We yearn so much to be actively working with you, but the reality is daunting, to say the least. Help us to recognise the qualities of humour and fondness and creativity that characterise your dealings with us. We have many false gods in this age, but we have to confess one of the most damaging ones of all is the God who cannot smile, never really does anything, and doesn't like us. Are you laughing at me? A chapter from his book, The Unlocking, Adrian Plass there. And you can read about Gideon in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's the book of Judges, chapter 6. 
Just a reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the Digital Access Channel or heartland.scot. And it's Bridge FM if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. area. But wherever you are, welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. As I've said already, we're working from home still with Sam Ross putting it all together for us. Thinking about remembrance again, and we owe it to those who died to make the world a better place, I think. The prophet Micah said, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Here's Martin Smith with You Have Shown Us. Smith with a song inspired by the words of the prophet Micah, you have shown us. But let's go over to David again. Larry Gentis lives in Kurt Michael and goes to Pitlochry Baptist Church. Larry has written a piece where he imagines himself to be Saul before he became the apostle Paul. My story started in Jerusalem when there was this rabbi from Nazareth who everyone claimed was a messiah. Apparently, 
He went around preaching what he called the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he supposedly healed many people, even raising someone from the dead. Again, apparently. He was crucified, but even so his followers were multiplying day by day, spreading their heresies throughout the land. Then we arrested this man named Stephen and had him before the ruling council. But please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Saul and I'm a Pharisee and living in Jerusalem. I've been taught in the school of Gamaliel, which is the best in the land, and I think I have a promising career in the Jew Jewish faith. Anyway, back to Stephen. Listening to this guy just made my blood boil. People like Stephen claim that Jesus, their leader, had risen from the dead and that he's our long-awaited savior sent by God to free us from the Romans. Well, I know what death looks like, and from what was described, he was well and truly dead. And I ask you, who could survive a crucifixion? Strange thing is, a lot of people are saying he's been seen alive, and not all of them are Galilean peasants. I wonder if... Hmm, I'm not even going to consider it. No way! Witnesses claimed that they heard Stephen blaspheme, and stoning to death is the punishment. Good riddance to rubbish, I said, and I guarded the coats of the ones who carried out the sentence and watched as they stoned him. I was even shouting and cheering them on. After all, what's worse than someone who leads people to go against God? Or so I thought. This Jesus had to be one of the worst, to have this kind of blind following. And well, my high priest and the council of elders hated him, wanted him dead. That was enough for me. Well, now that we've gotten rid of Jesus and Stephen, I wanted to make sure this cancer from Galilee could spread no further. I went to the leaders in Jerusalem and asked if they would give me letters to give me safe passage and introduction to Damascus to seek out and arrest anyone who was a follower of this Jesus. So, armed and ready with soldiers accompanying me, off I went. As we were traveling, suddenly a bright light shone around me, so bright that I was blinded and fell off my horse. Then... A voice from the sky called me by name and asked why I was persecuting him. I asked out loud who it was I was supposed to be persecuting. For some reason, I even called him Lord. And the voice answered me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Strangely, the ones who were traveling with me saw me fall and talking to someone, but there was no one there. To get up and enter the city was easier said than done, because I was blind and the ones who traveled with me took me by the hand and led me everywhere I went. They were trying to get me to eat and drink and regain my strength, but I had no appetite or thirst and refused everything for three days. I was trying to understand the truth of what had happened to me. Was I wrong? Was I wrong about everything I'd always believed? Things changed when a man named Ananias came to the house where I was staying laid hands on me and prayed for me to receive my sight. And when I could see again, I saw the tragic sight that it was his fearful and apprehensive face before me. He was visibly afraid of me because he knew why I'd come to Damascus. I'd come to persecute and even kill people like him. I hated Jesus and wanted to destroy him and anyone who followed him. But now I've met him, not as a physical being, but nevertheless oh so real. I've confessed that it was me that was wrong. My hatred of him was due to ignorance, despite all my extensive education. After all, what worth is education if it doesn't lead to God's truth? I've learned that God's truth has a name, Jesus. So how educated are you?
bloody dentist there, as Saul, who later became known as Paul, it was his Damascus Road experience. Music. And I think we all long for peace on earth. So here's the African Children's Choir with Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. The African Children's Choir there, that came from an album called It Takes a Whole Village. And now it's over to David one more time. John Greenshields is a retired Baptist minister living in Pilochri. He's rewritten the story of David and Goliath in Broad Scots. And he reads it for us now. This is the story of David and Goliath as you might well hear it told in the wonderful kingdom of Fife. Now, when David was just a wee bit loddy, his brothers went aft to fech the Philipsteins. So, a day, wee David says to his father, Oh, sir, I want to gang and fech the Philipsteins and all. But his father says, Na, na, you're far our way to be a soldier. But Eddie, his father, sent for him again. And he says, Hossar, I want you to tack this piece to your brothers who are fechting in the trenches in the front line. So off went wee Davy with the pieces wrapped in broom paper and tacking his favourite catapult to pong its buggies on the way. Well, he met his first brother and he says, Hossar, you're looking off a white about the gills. So would you be, says his first brother, because the enemy's this one Goliath and he's eight feet tall in his stocking holes. So then we Davy met his second brother and he says, Ho, sir, you're looking off a white about the gills and all. So would you be, says his second brother, because there's this one Goliath, the enemy, and he's nine feet tall in his stocking holes and he's got a spear the size of a lampy. And then he met his third brother Oh, sorry, says, you're looking worse than the other two. So would you be, says his third brother, if you saw the enemy? There's this one, Goliath, and he's ten feet tall in his stocking holes, and he's got a spear the size of a telegraph pole. All right then, says wee Davy, you better give me a crack at him before he gets any bigger. When the news reached the king that someone was going to challenge Goliath, he was exceeding glad. But when he saw wee Davy, his face fell with a mighty thud. Na, na, he says, you're far our way to fecht Goliath, cos he's eleven feet tall in his stocking holes and he's got a spear the size of a greeny pole. 
Well, we Davy was adamant. So the king put his armour on him. But we Davy tripped out of the king's sword because he couldn't see out of the king's buckler. Nah, nah, he says. Just let me hit him in my gym clays and my sannies. So putting a few chuckies in his pocket and tacking his catapult, he went out onto the plain to face Goliath. Ho, Goliath! Out ye come, ye cow de custard! I'm go fetch ye! Goliath come out and saw wee Davy, and he just laughed. Ha <laughs> ha, he says, you're far out wee to fecht me. Oh, I came and sup mere porridge. But wee Davy fitted a chucky in his catapult and he swung it round his head and he let it go whoosh through the air and it struck Goliath in the middle of his brew, wrecked atween his in. And Goliath was stunned because sick a thing had never afore entered his head. And he fell down, and the Philip Stites shouting, Get up and fecht a lot of your big nyaf. And Goliath says, Can you no see him, Dean, sir? And he fell down, Deed. And that's who wee Davy slew Goliath, a giant twelve feet tall in his stocking holes, and we a spear as big as a Maltes on Kirkcaldy's Esplanade. John Greenshields as a fifer telling the story of David and Goliath. Here are the Seekers with Pete Seeger's Turn, Turn, Turn. Apart from the refrain and the lines, or line, I swear it's not too late, the rest comes from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn Time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to love, a time to weep. To everything. Turn, turn, turn There is a season Turn, turn, turn And a time for every purpose Under heaven A time to build up A time to break down A time to dance A time to mourn And a time to cast away stones a time to gather stones together To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn And a time for every purpose under heaven A time of Season turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for peace. I swear. Seekers there and turn, turn, turn. 
We'll leave you with Graham Kendrick's Beauty for Brokenness. Freedoms to share